2 Kings chapter 5, verse number 1. Now, Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him Jehovah had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand pieces of gold, and ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is come unto thee, the letter said, When this letter is come, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass when the king of Israel had read the letter that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man does send to me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. And so, when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, and he, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou torn thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and, I shall, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel." So Naaman came with his horses, with his chariot, and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth, and went away and said, Behold, I thought... He would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place where his disease was and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May not I wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father... If the prophet had bid thee to do some great thing, wouldest thou not have done it? How much rather then, when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean. And he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would show us ways in which we can take from the faith of this man and apply it to the faith of this man and this woman, each of us. Teach us how to trust you for miraculous things. Strengthen our ability to trust, to believe our faith. 
We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Let's start with a silly question. Where on the map of God is your faith? If it was required that you pinpoint its exact location on a spiritual map, where would your faith be found? I don't know if it's true in real life, but in fiction, when the authorities want to find the bad guy, sometimes they use three cell towers to find his mobile phone. They triangulate the data, drawing lines between the towers, and voila, there he is. We finally found where his phone is, and that's where he's got the kidnap victim. In the scripture before us, we see the faith of three individuals. I think it's safe to say that our faith lies somewhere within the triangulation of those three people. Please remember that our purpose in these lessons is not to entertain. This is not one of those silly internet or women's magazine articles that claim to prove how smart you are or how well your hair is going to grow or whether you're going to be able to retire at the age of 50. It's nothing like that. This is far more important. Where is your faith? How strong, how high, how godly is your faith? I need to strengthen my faith. I need to bring what I know about the sovereign God who can do anything that he chooses to do. I need to bring that God into my daily life. I want to glorify his name. And the Bible tells me that my ability to trust him is a part of the process of glorifying God. I would like each of us I would like all of us to live in real, practical, spirit-blessed faith in God. The more we lean on him, trusting him to direct and empower us, the more we will be able to complete our number one, our primary Christian responsibility, which is to glorify God. We need that faith to do that. And if... Recognizing that our faith is more like Naaman's than Elisha's, if that is something which might help us to grow in this area of our lives, then I want my faith, I want your faith to be put to that test. We see the faith of three people in this scripture. Actually, there may be more than that, but we'll just limit it to these three. Which of these three does your faith more closely resemble? Let's start with the faith of the Hebrew maid. Elisha's mentor, Elijah, had been commissioned by God to anoint a new king over the country of Syria. The king mentioned in verse number one was probably that man. We don't have him named here. We don't have the king of Israel named either as far as that goes. It could very well be that this was Haziel, the man that Elijah anointed king. And if you will remember, Elijah's heart broke during that anointing ceremony because he knew what horrible things the Syrians were going to do in carrying out God's judgment on 
sinful Israel. One of the least of those terrible things was the capture and enslavement of Israeli citizens. Among those Jewish slaves, either taken directly by Naaman or abandoned, uh, uh, a bandit took her and brought her to Syria and sold her to Naaman or Naaman's wife. Uh, anyway, somehow a young Hebrew girl ends up in the home of Naaman. She is described as a little maid. Two words which indicate her age, not her stature. They tell us that she was young, but we can't be sure just how young she was. Balancing the nature of her service and the words that she used, I'd say that she was an adolescent, 8, 10, 12 years, maybe a young teenager, but quite young. Before her enslavement, this little girl had heard about God's prophet, Elisha. Perhaps she had met him. Perhaps he had been at her house or in her community. He had already become famous, performing some well-known miracles. Chapters 2, 3, and 4 describe some of those miracles. And then with the resilience of her youth, under the apparent kindness of her mistress, and I'm using my imagination once again for some of this, I'm going to say she was relatively well treated. Uh, her childlike faith was undeterred by her circumstances. Maybe she didn't know enough to realize that she was supposed to be miserable. She's supposed to be angry at God because she's a slave. But she's not. She's just a little kid. And she's enjoying the moment, whatever the moment might bring to her. In my imagination, she came into her mistress's bedroom one day and found her in tears, crying over her husband's deteriorating health. And with the innocence of youth, she just blurted out, Would God, my Lord, your husband were with Elisha, the prophet that's in Samaria, for he would recover or heal him of his leprosy. Wow! Out of the mouth of babes. There's not the hint of doubt here. If Naaman was up there with Elisha, he'd be healed. That's all there is to it. In the simplicity of her faith, she was convinced that Elisha would heal her master if they could meet. This young lady had no right to make a bold statement like that. No adult would ever have considered making a statement like this. What right does she have to guarantee that it was God's will or Elisha's privilege to heal this man? The idea is ludicrous. The idea is ridiculous, preposterous. Why would the God of Israel or his prophet be interested in helping Israel's enemy? It just doesn't make any sense. In her innocence, she didn't consider any of this. 
I know what my God can do, and I know what Elisha can do, and if my boss was up there, he'd be healed. That's all there is to it. She simply knew, she confidently believed that Elisha's God could do the unthinkable, could do the unimaginable. This is the epitome of the kind of faith that I would like to possess. It may be against logic, but God is greater than human logic. It is unreasonable, but God can do the unreasonable. And sometimes he will do the unreasonable and has done the unreasonable when he and only he is glorified in the process. If this little girl was here today, she might blurt out and say, if President Biden would bow before Jesus, he would be cured of his leprosy. And no. Theor theoretically, we could all say that. We know that this is a possibility. But this girl would actually pray for his salvation and then expect to hear about it on Fox News the next day. I expect him to be saved. This is outstanding and unusual faith. This faith was uncorrupted. And, and it, it, she might insist that her mother's friend with a brain cancer, if, if this lady would just ask the Lord, she would be cured. And the next day, this little girl would uh, ask her mother, have you talked to your friend today? This little girl would pray for rain and then immediately go to the closet looking for an umbrella. It's going to rain. This is the kind of faith that she has. It's dumb faith. It's simple faith. It's unrealistic faith. Wait a minute now. Is there something called realistic faith? It, the God of this little girl wasn't a chapter in a book of theology. He was not the subject of last Sunday morning's sermon. For her, Jehovah could empower her prophet, her pastor, to knock down walls and set igloos on fire. According to her faith, her church back there in Samaria could become the center of a national revival, maybe an international revival now that she is there in Syria. She trusted that her God, Jehovah, could save the soul of even the hardest-hearted heathen or even a whole nation of heathen. Oh, how I pray that God would give me this kind of trust and faith. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. My logic just won't allow me to go where this young girl is gone. What if we compare her faith with the faith of God's prophet? In chapter 2, we learn that Elisha knew that his old seminary professor, Elijah, was soon to leave his post. Elisha stuck to him like glue during the last few hours of, gorilla glue by the way, last few hours of his life. 
And when the Spirit led them to the eastern district of Israel, with no bridge to cross the river, no ferry to take them across, Elijah twisted up his cloak, slapped it down on the water of the Jordan, and the two men crossed the riverbed on dry ground just the way Israel had done so many years earlier. Elisha was learning to trust God the way Elijah learned to trust the Lord. When the younger man was miraculously left alone and needed to recross the Jordan to get to the other side to start his ministry, by faith he used the same technique that Elijah had used. Now, what had been no faith at all and became a small faith was growing by leaps and bounds in Elisha. He could trust the Lord for almost anything. We have military victories described here. We have miraculous provisions of food. We have the healing of poisonous foods and bad water. We even have the raising of the dead in Elisha, just as it was in Elijah. Even though leprosy was considered to be a form of living death, Elisha believed that God, who created life in the first place, could restore it at his will, even though this kind of miracle has not been recorded yet. Oh, if the Lord can raise the dead, he can heal the leper. No problem. Again, this size and strength of faith is something that I would like to have. I have very little desire... I won't say no desire. I have very little desire to heal cancer and to raise dead bodies. But I do believe that my God could do these things. And I beg the Lord to give me faith to trust that he will do this. I failed to mention earlier that uh, we change our clocks on Saturday. And there's a ladies' Bible study on Saturday. I am praying. You may think I'm a fool. Maybe I am. I am praying and expecting Rachel to be well by Friday so that she can go to the Bible study. Is, logically, that's not supposed to happen. She's pretty sick. But I'm praying that that takes place. And God can do that. God can do that. I have no desire to make the sun stand still. I have no desire to be teleported from Gaza to uh, uh, Azotus. But I do long to have the power to lead spiritually dead souls to eternal life in Christ. And not just once in a while, but continually. I yearn to have the soggy sacrifice of my life and of our church set in flames by fire from heaven. That day when the mantle of Elijah fell onto his shoulders, Elisha was ready to take up his service of God on the western side of the river. So he walked right up to the Jordan with the expectation of crossing on dry ground. And he twisted Elijah's mantle up like a rope 
And then he uttered an interesting prayer. Where is the God of Elijah? Where is the Lord God of Elijah? Why can't we adapt that thought into our needs today? Where is Jehovah, the God of Elijah, the God of Elisha, the God of the Apostle Paul? Where are you, Lord? Lord, we need you as much today as those prophets did in their day. Lord, show us your mighty hand once again. Part the waters. Glorify yourself once again. Naaman rode up to Elisha's house in Gilgal, there in the valley of the Jordan River, riding his fancy Cadillac chariot. He thought that he was being quite humble. I picture him getting out of the chariot and walking up to the door of Elisha's house. But all that God's prophet did was command him to turn around and go those few hundred yards over to the Jordan River and, and walk right in. That was all there was to it. To baptize himself seven times. The prophet declared that on the seventh dip into the river, he would be healed. What gave Elisha the confidence that the Syrian would be healed? I'm going to assume that the Lord told him. We're not told that, but I'm going to assume that. And that message was communicated to Naaman through Elisha's face. I believe it's going to happen. Naaman, go to the river. No one really has the right to give that sort of command, the sort of command that Elisha did, except it came initially from God. So, I'm not going to join the charismatic heretics telling people if they will baptize their wallets, they will be wealthy within a month. I'm not going to tell the dying man to look into my eyes and he will be healed. I'm only going to do the things and declare the things which God has specifically told me. And I'm only looking to find directions in the pages of the Word of God. That doesn't mean I won't pray that Rachel be healed. But I, I think I can see that sort of thing in the Word of God. Elisha had the faith and the confidence to repeat what the Lord told him about Naaman. That is real faith. That is biblical faith. Jehovah is still the God of this universe. He can still do miraculous things like saving a soul of a wretched sinner or healing the broken bones of a crippled church. There is much to admire and emulate in the faith of the Hebrew maid. But I think it's more practical to study the faith of Elisha. Not that one is... Less than the other. But what about the faith of Naaman? We're told in verse number one that Naaman was a great man in the eyes of his earthly king. Probably because of his valor and courage. He was also apparently honored and respected by others in his nation because of his military skills. And where did he get those military skills? God gave, the Lord, Jehovah, gave him those skills. 
We're told that Jehovah was the one who enabled him to bring deliverance to Syria. Ultimately, any victory, or conversely, any defeat, comes from the will of the Lord. But of course, that didn't make Naaman a child of God. That didn't make Naaman uh, a man of faith. Furthermore, Naaman's victories and his national awards didn't keep him from contracting leprosy. His flesh was literally falling off his body, disfiguring his face, his hands, his toes, his feet. He may have been losing his eyesight because the tear ducts in a leper don't work, and if he doesn't medicate his eyes, he'll go blind. He was dying. Like everybody else, he was dying. But he is a little more obvious than everybody else. Most likely, he had visited the best-known physicians in Syria, and no one could help him. He probably tried all the old wives' cures and all of the new creams that were coming out. But then his wife told him what her servant girl had said, and that was passed on to Haziel, the king. Apparently, Israel's king had become a vassal to the Syrians, so Haziel ordered the Israelite king to facilitate the cure of his uh, number one general, Naaman, or else. But Israel's king didn't even have the same degree of faith that Haziel had. It doesn't appear that he even notified Elisha. All he did was fall into a panic. This is just an excuse to attack the nation of Israel. I'm not sure how the prophet heard about Naaman. Perhaps the Lord revealed it to him. But Elisha then went to the king and ordered the king to send Naaman to his house, to Elisha's house. There must have been a tiny bit of faith both in Haziel and Naaman to undertake this trip to Samaria. But this was not saving faith. It was not biblical faith. Naaman didn't have enough faith to humble him sufficiently to walk those few steps into the Jordan River. I think there's a lesson here which perhaps I should address in another lesson later. The kind of faith we need to have is never far removed from utter humility and absolute surrender. True faith leaves no room for human pride. It is impossible to be proud about True faith. Having come to the end of human hope, Naaman may have had a tiny bit of faith, but he had no humility whatsoever. He had spent all that currency in coming to Samaria in the first place. Hearing Elisha's directions, Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought... He will surely come to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. He said, I thought that this great faith healer would put on a show over my disease. 
I thought that he would utter some sort of magic words, some, some prayerful words, and I would be cured. I thought that he would honor me, since I have given him the honor of coming to his house. Naaman turned away in a rage, probably uttering those curse words that were particular for the language that he spoke. But then some of his servants encouraged one of his closer advisors to talk to him. Perhaps there was even a bit of faith in the man who tried to stir the flames of Naaman's faith, but then maybe not. With his advisor's encouragement, the great general reconsidered the prophet's words. It may have been out of desperation. It may have been nothing more than the last hope of healing. There may have been only the tiniest bit of faith involved and a corrupted form of faith at that. But he did as he was told. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. His skin became, as some might say, as my mother probably would have said, his skin became as smooth as a baby's bottom. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him and said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. This is what it's all about. This is the purpose that God blesses human faith. This is why I yearn for the faith of Elisha. That sinners might admit there is a God who is in this earth. Yeah. There is a Savior who resides in Calvary Independent Baptist Church. I would like to know that sinful lives, even idolatrous, wicked lives, are being changed because new hearts are being planted in those wicked chests. That our church was filled with people like Naaman. I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to step down just a little bit and maybe take a, a page from other preachers and messages that I've heard. Naaman didn't join Elisha's church. He got saved, and then he went home. He didn't become a disciple of Christ. He didn't, he made his profession of faith and then he went home to serve the Lord in, in the corrupt manner that he thought was good enough for God. He should have stayed right there. He should have gone on to serve the Lord in the Lord's church, but he didn't. And as a result, his ongoing faith was not what it ought to be. Nevertheless, I have a hope to meet him one day in heaven despite his failures. Can you imagine what Naaman's homecoming was like? I hope that his wife was filled with joy. I hope that there was a loving relationship there, and I'm not guaranteeing that there was. I'm going to say it's a regular husband-wife relationship, and she was concerned about his disease, and now it's gone. And what became of that little maid? Was there any honor given to her? 
As a slave girl, my guess would be that she didn't get much more than a tip of the hat from Naaman. Maybe his wife was a little happier. I don't know. But I do know this. We shouldn't expect much more than a tip of the hat from the world. If we can reach out and, and see a, a homeless person saved and, and cleaned up from his drugs and, and headed toward a good job, the society may say, oh, well done, but not much more than that. We know better. We know, we know what a victory that sort of thing is. That's marvelous. Society doesn't care if the lost are converted, but again, our personal exaltation shouldn't be a part of the equation. If the Lord is glorified, that's the point. That should be our desire. The Lord's glory. To know that we have done our part. To know that we have used our faith to be a blessing to someone. That should satisfy us. But first and foremost, to know that God is pleased with our service and with the manner in which we have served him, that should fill us with joy. Oh, that our faith would become more like Elisha's. Amen.